electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation was trending lower until today. So will the Fed now shift to full attack mode? Stocks selling off on the possibility. But what does full attack mode really mean? Half point in March, a terminal rate of 6%. We'll game out the scenarios and what it means for the economy and markets. Plus, what will it do to housing? We're just starting to see things turn around. January new home sales hitting the highest level in nearly a year. Is the Fed about to kill that momentum? And Wall Street has been loving AI stocks, but how do you separate the real promise from the hype? Today, we look at some not-so-obvious ways to play the technology. A special three buys and a bail coming up. Let's start with the sell-off today, though. Bob Bassani has our numbers looking a little better than, well, I don't know, maybe looking worse again, Bob. Yeah, that's exactly right. Head spinning. They've made a modest attempt to rally uh, late in the morning uh, and it's been fading here. And can you blame them given the inflation news? Uh, Only one stock's up in the Dow Industrials. That's JP Morgan. And it's just fractional. Uh, S&P 500 uh, was higher earlier and it's faded back down. But there was a little attempt there. Nasdaq's down. Essentially, I don't want to differentiate these too much. All of them are down about 3% for the week. So, yes, a little bit of underperformance from tech towards the close, but that not, not much. The key story is, again, the bond yields. The two-year yield at 4.8% and looks technically like it wants to go to 5%. I can't emphasize how much I keep hearing. This is now serious competition for the stock market. People put away two years for 5%. Why worry about stocks short term, given how head spinning some of these changes are? That's serious money being drawn away from the stock market into the bond market. Uh, take a look at sectors here. And you can see the last few weeks, as bond yields have risen, the dollar has risen. It's put more pressure on growthier sectors and emerging market stocks. So ARC had an incredible start to the year. That's fading. It's essentially sitting right near a fi- the, the low for the month. Uh, semiconductors had, did very well early on. They, too, have faded a little bit uh, here. Uh, emerging market and healthcare uh, also having a tougher... Uh, healthcare is actually starting to outperform on a relative basis in the last couple of weeks after having a lousy start to the year on a relative basis. So you see how head-spinning things can be uh, when you have a turnaround in the rates. Downsized leaders today. Uh, again, Tesla, great start to the year, but it's essentially topped out right now. Uh, Amazon, a good start to the year as well after horrible last year, and it's sitting at the low for the month of February right now. The metal stocks like Freeport Macaran, also great start to the year. That stock's also sitting at a low for the month of February. And even the cruise ships, they had a great start. I mean, they all were just up to a couple of weeks ago, they were roaring. Uh, Royal Caribbean is starting to fade as well. So again, it gets very difficult to figure out what's going on because the rates are changing the narrative. And that's because of inflation. Take a look at the S&P. We're down 3% for the month of February, but we're up 3% for the year. There you go. There's your little roller coaster. And again, guys, all about figuring out what the inflation picture is going to look like. Back to you. And Bob, let me just ask you, so 39.53 on the S&P 500. What do you think the traders are going to be watching as I try to bring up my email uh, telling us which of the 50 days we're about to hit on which averages? I mean, these are some thresholds uh, that people don't really want to see us close under going into the weekend. 
Yeah, it's uh, the 200 day moving average, I believe is 3940 something right now. We're sitting right on the 200 day moving average. We've been above that for most of this year. That remember we broke that downtrend uh towards the end uh, of last year uh and have been above the 200 day recently and we're sitting right on it right now so that'll get a lot of play if we broke both i believe it's 39.48 somewhere right around there all right great bob thank you we appreciate it about five points above okay. that level now everyone's buzzing about these stronger january numbers not just inflation it was the jobs remember that started this all off we got the new home sales this morning what does it all mean for the fed steve leesman is at the u.s monetary policy forum in new york city uh, some big what is this at the fed those columns are enormous uh, anyway uh, he's got the latest fed speak and reaction to this <laughs> These hot inflation numbers, Steve. Yeah, well, we got five or six Fed members here. And uh, what's happening, Kelly, as you correctly point out, Treasury yields and the outlook for the Fed marching higher today, propelled by lousy inflation numbers and some hawkish Fed speak right here at the U.S. Monetary Policy Conference. The peak funds rate, take a look, now near a new high at 541 for that August contract. That's the peak rate as markets priced in continued rate hikes in March, May and June and some toying with a potential July hike. The year end rate also at a near a new high 530 with only a half a quarter point of cuts built in almost nothing at all. The big culprit here that hotter inflation number for the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. PCE price index a tick higher when it came to the headline number, two ticks higher on core. The year-over-year -year core rate, remember the Fed has a 2% target here, it ticked up three-tenths to 4.7%. But there was also uh, uh, some hawkish Fed talk with the new Fed governor, Philip Jefferson, here saying high inflation may only come down slowly and bringing service inflation under control depends upon better balance in labor supply and demand. So what's going on with that? Not going the right way. Service inflation, he says, depends on that better balance, but also the issue being wages being high and, in, and, and inconsistent with the Fed's 2% target. The data suggested not much cooling in the economy with new home sales beating. And despite a miss on personal spending, the um, forecasts I saw today, economists are mostly boosting their outlook for growth this quarter up near 2% now. All of it raising the question, does the Fed have to push down harder on the economic brakes in order to get inflation under control? Kelly, I saw your tease about 6% yep. at the top of the show. There's not much support for that in the Fed funds futures market. Um, it looks like the odds on bet right now, I'll give you a number right as we go along here. More in the five and a quarter to five and a half range. That wow. 5.37 number is, is where the market is right now. But hey, don't blink. It may change on Monday. <laughs> It's all going to depend on how this February data set comes in, too. Steve, uh, actually, stay with exactly. us. Let's bring in uh, my next guest. She just raised her call for more Fed hikes, says she now sees rates, listen up, 575 by the end of this year. Let's bring in okay. Michelle Girard, head of U.S. <laughs> at NatWest Markets. Michelle, welcome. So uh, you've had enough. You, you've raised the forecast. Good afternoon. Yeah, go, go ahead. Tell us. I was going to say, we blinked, uh, if you will. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's face it, the you know the numbers that we've been seeing, Kelly, you alluded to, going back to that strong employment report, the strong retail sales numbers, obviously the inflation numbers, not only with today, but the CPI numbers. I mean, it's been setting the stage to suggesting that the cooling in the economy, the, the deceleration in inflation that looked like maybe it was going to unfold uh, as we came into the year, getting people more optimistic, the Fed could could begin to, to pause. 
I mean, I, I, that's all all these data that we've seen the last few weeks have called that into question. I think it's got to have left the Fed very uncomfortable. The last thing they want to do is pause and 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 have to then restart, you know, because they ended they they, they you know, they stopped too early. And so we think with the you know, with the data that we've got in hand with inflation moving up, not down, the Fed will take more aggressive action as, as early as March, moving moving by 50 basis points as opposed to just 25, yeah. and that they will end up having to do more. So we've gotten on that terminal rate at 575 and wouldn't even rule out that it hits 6%. This is the kind of weekend that the, the inbox is fun to read because you get people, <laughs> you know, the stuff, they, they drop things like, you know, weekly update and they're going, you know, we think they're going to 6.5%. Like crazy things are about to happen. So let me just quote Chris Repke at Forward Bonds uh, writing after the report. The risk is now whether the Fed shifts back into full attack mode and delivers a half-point hike in March. And listen up, Steve, ups the terminal rate forecast to 6% this year. So he thinks the dots, Steve, in the next meeting could show a significant upward bias. Of course, we're going to get a lot of the February data before then, so we'll see. So I, I think the Fed's going to be a little bit more incremental than Michelle suggests. I, I could be wrong. And, you know, we have, I had the same debate with uh, Diane Swank earlier where I acknowledged you could be right about this, but you're going to need the data to break in your favor. And in this case, it would be negatively in your favor in the sense that you have to have a higher March inflation number showing that what we've seen today is persistent uh, into the month of March. Another strong jobs report that might seal it, but I don't think the Fed wants to herk and jerk around here. I think what the Fed would prefer to do is to move more incrementally. So my bet would be that that uh, terminal rate does go up, but is more in the 540 range. I think that's probably right where the market is priced. I'm looking right now, and I don't have a better feel for this than the market itself does, at only a 25% or so probability of a 50 basis point hike. And I'm sure what Michelle would respond is, Yes, but when the data come in or if the data come in, as you expect, then the market's going to change. And I would agree that's true. Michelle? Yeah, I mean, that is exactly. It. And, you know, and Steve, we've only put a, a 60, 40 percent chance on, on 50 basis points. I mean, we, we ourselves are, are right. we're continuing to debate whether or not they'd step up or, or not. I, I think, you know, to right. some extent, we're we're listening to the fact the Fed wants to be I think they'd rather get ahead of it, if you will, recognizing that if they do move more aggressively near term, it may ultimately mean they can stop sooner, that they the terminal rate won't have to go so high as it would what if you kind of right. dragged out with a bunch of 25 cents? Yeah. Let's just say that's a change in regime, right? Because what the Fed did is it kind of downshifted a little bit. It went from this front-end loading idea to the responsive quarter. And what you're saying is you're going to go back to the front-end loading. I know there's some support on that. I know that uh, uh, Loretta Mester and Jim Bullard wanted to do that. We know there's one other person, I'm guessing, by the way, publicly here with no knowledge that it might have been Neil Kashkari because we know that he's in the 540 range. Um, and I also think that Powell, if the data supports it, I think the chair would support that uh, going back to a 50 to get in front of it. The, the question becomes one of a concept of how is inflation going to play out here? We did have some success towards the end of the year in bringing it down. And are these two reports we've had, are they bumps along the road or are they part of a new trajectory? I'm a little bit more optimistic that inflation begins to come down mm -hmm. again and so the Fed can settle back into those quarters. But I would change my mind in an instant if that March data is again on the strong side. Do we just have to wait a couple of weeks, Michelle, to find out? Or do you think there's a better way to get a feel for that answer? 
Well, I think we will have to wait because I do think these, you know, the next jobs report, the next inflation report clearly will go a long way to, you know, to altering expectations. But, you know, our numbers don't, I mean, even 175,000 jobs gain uh, for February on top of the, you know, it's a pullback, if you will, from what we saw in five seventeen thousand in March, but it, it's still very strong. And we do have inflation numbers remaining very persistent, you know, four tenths of a percent increases. And that absolutely feeds into our expectation that the Fed is just going to end up having to, you know, having to do more here you know than the even thing, they might currently expect. It, it, I don't mean to interrupt but it, real quickly before we go, Michelle, that we that I, I'm starting to wonder about energy prices either are going lower because we're in recession or if we're not, they can't go much lower from here. You know, what happens if gasoline prices start to take a U-turn? We saw consumer sentiment dive. It hit its lows when gasoline prices were highest back in last June. Nat gas has plunged. I mean, if those turn and start to get some traction again, then then it's going to be not not so great. That's exactly right, because we're obviously very focused on the core readings, the core readings, service, core services, ex-housing, all the numbers that the Fed is, has gotten us to focus on that don't even take into account energy. Those are moving higher. If you pile on energy on top of it, it obviously only makes the story worse, with the exception of higher energy prices would be a drag on economic activity. Right. And and if some way that helped, to, you know, not help, but if that actually it, led to be some dovish. cooling... Yeah, and it would be, <laughs> it'd be psych- it psychologically, <laughs> you know, hawkish, maybe fundamentally dovish. Steve, quick last word. Very quickly, I think what's important about the dynamic, what might make Michelle right, is there's nobody on the FOMC to argue with her. One of the great headlines yesterday came from J.P. Morgan, who was remarking on the minutes and said, who left the, do- the doves out? There were no doves <laughs> in those minutes. So, so <laughs> if there, there's nobody to say, hold on, let's not press so far on these breaks. It seems like everybody, as I said, there's only one species of Fed official, a greater or lesser hawk. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Steve Leisman today and our Michelle Gerardo other way around, but you know what I mean. Uh, My next guest says the road upward for stocks is narrowing, and for the first time in his 35-year career, he's seeing a better opportunity in bonds. Let's welcome in Chris Crisanti. He's chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management. So much to get to here, Chris. Welcome. Um, I like your cul-de-sac analogy. You know, we've talked about, is the Fed making a U-turn? This, But but tell me a little bit why you think, no matter what we do, we're going to end up at the same destination here in in the months ahead. Right. Yeah, and what you're referencing, Kelly, it's good to be with you again, uh, is, is I, I feel like the market is like a car speeding down a cul-de-sac. So it's obviously risen since the beginning of the year, but the road forward is narrowing. So either the economy remains strong, and as Michelle and Steve were just talking about, the Fed has to go ever higher and higher, uh, so the peak rate continues up, or the economy rolls over, earnings fall, and, and we, we start a recession. So in the first scenario, a recession still comes, but it comes a bit later, and, and frankly, it will probably go a bit deeper. So neither scenario is great for stocks, although, you know, there is some hope. I think we could be setting up for a very strong 2024, but, yeah, but between the, now and then, we've got some issues. It's the opposite of the, the kind of Tepper paradigm from the 2010s, where either stocks go up because the economy is improving or they go up because the Fed comes in to support it. And that worked for a long time. Now you're arguing we're kind of in the reverse of that. So now some have said, though, Chris, that they wouldn't even want to you can't own stocks and you can't own bonds right now because suddenly we're talking about a six percent Fed funds rate or higher. Um, Why would you still feel comfortable and and in what parts of the of the bond land would you want to own? Not only would I feel comfortable, Kelly, I'd actually extend the maturities. Uh, and, and go out a ways. So 
the, the reason I feel comfortable is, especially as opposed to the equity market, is, is as I mentioned, there seems to be two ways forward, neither one of which ends up terribly well for the equity markets. Um, but both end up in a slowing economy. Either it slows sooner because the Fed's already hiked, you know, 475 basis points, or it slows later because the Fed hikes 600 or 650 basis points. But either way, as, as Steve said, there are no doves left. I mean, uh, we're going to control this uh, inflation no matter what it takes. So I love holding long bonds in that situation, especially when you compare the risk reward to stocks right now. Now, look, I own lots of stocks. This is a portfolio hedge. But boy, it sure seems risk reward to be a good one. So if rates keep going up, I lose a little on my bonds. Boy, it's not going to be good for the equity markets if, if Fed funds goes to six or six and a half percent. So, so I'd, I'd rather hold the bonds. And when the story continues and that we dip into recession, I'll do just fine with the bonds, offsetting probably some losses in the equity portfolio. Yeah, again, five, you know, five one for the six month, you know, four percent as you go further out, but uh, but still. So we can't end it though. You alluded to stocks and uh, Domino's Pizza. Okay, we, I, I could go on and on about this. No, I. It's so you're. It's so funny of all the things you picked this one because I was looking at that yesterday, and here was my reaction. Bring back Patrick Doyle. This company only was what it was because of his halo effect and all the rest of it. Right. You have a very different take. I'd love for you to just quickly share with people where you look at this and just say maybe all the cards, you know, the deck looks stacked against them until it doesn't. Um, tell me about that. Well, a couple of things. First of all, our style is to pick uh, ideas that nobody likes. So, so there's a big delta when, when nobody likes it to now, some people like it. Now, a lot of people like it. That was the case with Boeing. That was the case with Meta. That was the case, as you and I have talked about a lot, the home builders. Uh, and, and those have been great stocks from the bottom. But having said that, Domino's Pizza has an additional uh, credit to it, which is that in recession, folks trade down to pizza. So just like the bonds might do actually kind of well in a recession, Domino's might be one of those counter-cyclical stocks that would, again, be a portfolio hedge. Dollar General might be another one of those. So these are stocks that actually grow their business in recession. Domino's has a number of problems. I'm not trying to make light of them, but it's also a strong franchise. It's the number one pizza seller in the United States. And, you know, <laughs> with anyone a bunch of kids knows, pizza's not going away. So if all they have to do is get it right, and I think over our time horizon, which is two to three years, I think they'll get it right. It's the cheapest it's been in 10 years. And so I think it's a good risk reward. Yeah, I know. And I liked your point that their biggest problem right now, you know, not having drivers facing those labor costs resolves itself in a recession. Real quickly, would Uber, right. Lyft, would those, you know, kind of stocks be a similar call? I mean, they've struggled. Obviously, they would be hurt in a weaker macro, but maybe they have a, a little bit of an offset there. I do. They, they definitely will find the, the, the employee driver situation better. Problem, of course, is, is folks just use less rides in, in as the economy softens. Whereas the, I think they'll, I hope, they'll eat more pizza in a recession than, than, than going to Ruby Tuesdays, for example. Yeah, the man likes bonds. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. And pizza. Uh, we appreciate your bonds time today. Pizza. Yeah, really. <laughs> That's the portfolio for the next six months. Maybe throw in right. some bills. Uh, Chris Crisanti, as I mentioned, chief equity strategist at MAI. Still ahead, there's new home sales hitting their highest level in nearly a year. While sales of existing homes are at their lowest in over a decade, we'll dig into the disconnect with the CEO of Brown Harris Stevens next with mortgage rates just under 7%. And on the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine, we're looking at every angle of the world conflict. The new state of geopolitics, the fragile energy economics, and the state of play in Washington as Biden doubles down on Ukraine's defense. 
And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow was down 510 at the lows. We're only 60 points off that level. Worst performer is the Nasdaq down more than 2%. 10-year yield, 3.967. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Mortgage rates inching back towards 7%, especially after today's moves. After spending the whole month of January closer to 6, you'd think homebuyers would be pulling back now. Today's new home sales were still higher than expected, though 670,000 annual pace versus the 618 expected. What gives in housing? There's a big change between new home and existing home sales, too. My next guest says everyone is still in wait-and-see mode, but that sellers need to give way on prices. Joining me is Bess Friedman, CEO of Brown Harris Stevens. Great to have you back, Bess. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. So nice to be here with you. Why do you think price is the biggest sticking point right now versus inventory, for instance? Well, I think we have a supply and demand issue, and I think inventory is still tight in certain areas. And so, for example, new home sales are moving quicker because they're built to sell and existing home sales have declined because I think sellers want to stay with the rate that they have and they're waiting to see what's going to happen. So, uh, I think it's a little, we're in a little bit of gridlock in certain areas. Um, for example, in Darien, Connecticut, there are 17 homes on the market right now when there's usually north of 200. Wow. Um, so imagine, in, in Greenwich, Connecticut, there's usually north of 800. Right now we have like 140 homes on the market. So again, supply and demand issues. When you have demand so high and supply down here and there's no intersection of the two, you, you, you see what's going on in places like Connecticut and Palm Beach. But where you have good supply... Um, and demand is decent, you know, there's more fluidness like in New York City where we're seeing a decent amount of traffic and movement in the market. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, North Jersey, same thing. There's there's just really not much there. So, you yep. know, you look back at the last couple of years and wonder if what we had was kind of this great reset where a lot of the sort of millennial population moved out of cities. They bought that housing stock. As Bill Smead always reminds us, there's more of them than there were the previous generation. So there were fewer literally houses to grab. It's, it was kind of like a giant game of musical chairs. The music stopped, the pandemic hit, everybody raced for a property, and the people who didn't get one are still kind of looking for one, but there's nothing left there to pick. It, it, is that right? It's true. Yeah, I mean, I, look, the pandemic spurred this housing boom. We saw it in Connecticut. We saw it in Palm Beach, in the Hamptons as well. Um, and now we're kind of back to a more guarded environment. Uh, rates have ticked up, as we see. And, you know, everybody, human psychology, pe the people want what everybody else wants. So if you go to an open house, like I was talking to someone, went to an open house in Montclair, and there was like 30 people there in line. People yes. want 
what everybody else wants, right? We all want, when you, it's everything. We always want what other people are looking for. And when you see nobody interested, then you're not interested. So I think we see a lot of that in certain areas. And so we're in a little bit of a wait and see pattern in housing. But I will say that housing, Kelly, is a long-term investment. You're not trading like you do many times with stocks. It's for the long haul. It's your best investment ever. And even though rates are up, um, you can probably negotiate better. There's more opportunity in this market than there was probably when when money was cheaper because you can negotiate with the seller a little bit more in environments that are tight. Here, here's kind of an odd question for you, but what would it take to get people out of their houses, right? You, you know, so if the, if we're trying to get people into the existing supply, but it's just not on the market, what's the biggest holdup? I think people have to be motivated because of a new job or want to go to a new place. And we are seeing people, for example, leave New York, go to Texas, go to Florida. So that will motivate people. But I think, for example, let's go back to Darianne. If you are living there and you want to get a bigger house and there's only 17 on the market, you're probably going to wait and see. And you can't, you know, negotiate. You're not going to the prices are really high. So I think people are not going to be motivated unless they can really get crazy prices for their homes. Yeah. That's when people may sometimes. Um, but, you know, it's it's sort of we're in this weird cycle right now in housing, but it is not the end of the world. It's not, you know, it's not doom and gloom. There's a decent amount of activity. And also housing markets depend on where you are. You know, uh, it depends. Every region is different. Sure. Um, and activity is decent. And I think consumer confidence is guarded, but people are still you know, buying and believe in the home buying process. Yeah. And again, those who, who didn't get quite what they wanted or didn't get a chance, you know, they're still out there. Bess, uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Have a great weekend. You too. Bess Friedman, Brown Harris Stevens, CEO. Coming up, Microsoft getting tons of buzz over chat GPT, but there are plenty of other names that should benefit from the AI arms race. We'll look at some under the radar ones in today's edition of Three Buys and a Bail. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. We're down 405, so about 100 points off the lows. Boeing, Microsoft, Salesforce, Force, the worst performers. JP Morgan, the only name in the green right now. There's a call on the street. They can hit a trillion-dollar market cap. Uh, the stock's up a tenth of a percent. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's been, during the session, turning negative on the year. So a 1.2% drop right now, but we're keeping an eye on whether we've now erased a lot of the gains we experienced in January. Granted, it was the worst performer anyway, uh, the underperformer, I should say. The Nasdaq, which had been up as much as 13% year-to-date, is down about 2% today. I'll show you some of the weaker spots, and it's definitely the XRT ETF, down 7% this week. Well, that's really just since Tuesday. It's been a short week, and that is its worst week since last summer, a 2% drop today. Among the worst performers, it's not really the retailers you might think of. It's names like Carvana, down 33%, Wayfair. Uh, by the way, Carvana posting that loss of nearly $8 a share versus estimates of just over 2 Wayfair, way wider than expected loss this week, 20% drop in active users. Dillard's down 12%. Nordstrom, same thing. Chewy as well. So really a lot of different contributors to this underperformance. 
In a positive sense, you can check out Beyond Meat today, which is bucking, bucking the broader sell-off, she said. It's up almost 10%, almost to $19 a share after posting a smaller-than-expected loss. Now, part of this rally, also likely the result of a short squeeze, 37% short interest uh, in this stock. So that's certainly something to be mindful of. And today's trading volume, $22 million. That's more than eight times its 30-day average. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, as Ukraine marks the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion with a ceremony in Kiev, Germany, France, and the U.K. are thinking about giving Ukraine much broader access to NATO's military equipment, weapons, and ammunition to defend itself uh, after the war, uh, to give Kiev an incentive to start peace talks, potentially, with Russia. That's according to a report by The Wall Street Journal, which says the three countries think there can be a pact with Russia even if Russia continues to occupy parts of Ukraine. But at the United Nations Security Council today, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken responded to China's proposal for talks by warning against any call for a temporary or unconditional ceasefire in Ukraine. Any peace that legitimizes Russia's seizure of land by force will weaken the charter and send a message to would-be aggressors everywhere that they can invade countries and get away with it. And in South Carolina, the murder defendant Alex Murdaugh is on the stand for a second straight day, denying a prosecutor's accusation that he manufactured an alibi for the time his wife and son were killed. Fascinating testimony. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Still ahead, it's been one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We look at the impact the war has had on energy, defense and geopolitics next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Today marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, rattling the world and leaving more than 13 million people displaced. As we move into the second year, let's take a look at the economic fallout here at home. Energy prices initially soared but have since plunged. Overall, crude's down about 17 percent since the invasion, while nat gas has fallen nearly 50 percent. Defense and weapons spending up. The U.S. has sent Ukraine nearly $47 billion in military aid so far, a number that has recently sparked debate within both parties. President Biden pledging another $2 billion in weapons and enacting new sanctions on Russia just today. As for the latest geopolitical developments, Biden made a surprise visit to the region, not only visiting Kiev, but working to shore up alleys on NATO's eastern flank. Vladimir Putin backed out of a nuclear treaty with the U.S. on Wednesday. China's top diplomat also met with Putin this week ahead of the release of a document that urged diplomacy but fell short of calling for an immediate end to hostilities. Beijing also accused the U.S. of wanting to prolong the conflict. Let's turn to our panel of experts. RBC's Halima Croft is here to talk energy. Jeffrey's analyst Shia, Sheila Kailu, Kailu, sorry, Sheila, covers defense. And Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp has the geopolitical bird's eye view. And it's really, really great to have you guys all here. Halima, let me start with you. And I mean, year two, Putin did not think, uh, obviously, we were going to be here. What are you watching for further fallout on energy markets, which have held up relatively well? They absolutely have held up well, particularly oil markets. I mean, there was concern when the war started that we'd see a major reduction in Russian oil exports. It'd be sanctions to Russian oil exports. Russian oil production, though, has held up. It's basically slightly below pre-war levels. The hmm. question is... Is it going to start to roll? The Russians have said they're going to cut production by 500,000 barrels next month in response to the G7 price cap plan. Are we starting to see the impact of these European sanctions? 
Are we starting to see the impact of the technology sanctions, making it harder for Russia to maintain production at complex fields? They've already weaponized nat gas. They've cut off basically 90 percent of gas exports to Europe. Europe survived because of warmer weather. Question is, what happens next winter? And could they, I mean, we were talking about this with Brian Sullivan yesterday, but could they still use nat gas as really a way of saying, you know, we could pull back even further on the kind of more than a trickling that's still making its way into Europe. I mean, that is a big question. Well, they actually cut gas flows that go through Ukraine. But the question is, can Europe build inventory with no Russian molecules? And if you have a colder winter next year, what's the economic fallout going to be? So I don't think we're done with the energy concerns yet from this war. Yeah, it feels like we don't stay at levels quite this low with, with this still raging. Fred, as Halima alluded there, if Russia still has tons of money from their uh, global energy markets, uh, the revenue that they're raising, if the U.S. is still supplying Ukraine with all of these weapons, how much further could this crisis go on? Well, it it, it really depends uh, how much we push right now. So President Biden made his historic trip this week, but the magnitude of how historic it is will hang uh, directly off whether we get weapons quickly enough to Ukraine and whether we get more modern weapons to Ukraine, air defense systems, long-range fires, so that uh, the Russians can't keep hitting civilian targets with impunity, to give the Ukrainians a chance to really uh, make a big difference this year. A war of attrition is in Russia's interest. It's not in Ukraine's interest. And so I think there's, I've been calling for a surge in support of Ukraine, knowing that a longer war uh, isn't in anybody's interest. More people will die. You'll have fatigue in the West and also in Ukraine from the war. Uh, And this is really the time when when Putin is relatively weak to push harder. How does Ukraine win, you know, in a compressed period of time? How much more are we talking about in terms of U.S. support, international support that could really lead to a victorious outcome in in a short window of time? Well, there there are a couple of ways to win. One of them is Putin seeing he can no longer get what he wants on the battlefield and therefore he sues for peace and negotiates. That's going to take Ukraine retaking enough territory that he sees there's no place to go. The other is that people around uh, Putin will say, look, this just isn't good for the uh, future of the country. And one way or another, he gets removed from office. That's pretty hard to imagine. It's too opaque to see how that happens. So I would put my money on giving Ukraine what it needs to push back so that Putin is it may, is made very clear to Putin this year through loss of territory and loss of lives, Russian lives, uh, that this is uh, this is not something he wants to continue. Yeah, I just can't imagine his reaction, You know, even if it looks like that is becoming a possibility. And instead of going there, Sheila, let's turn to you and talk, talk about the defense stocks, talk about uh, the spending as you sit there and, and sort of try to game plan this all out. What does it mean for the companies you follow? Sure. So, Kelly, thinks, I think four things have happened in defense since Ukraine. First, defense funding is obviously up. We ended the Trump administration at about a defense budget of $716 billion. In 20, fiscal 22, the budget was 800 hmm. For fiscal 23, the budget was $858 billion, up wow. 10% year over year. And we're expecting to see the fiscal 24 budget. We're keenly watching it for March 9th. That's when we're going to see what the budget looks like. Jeffries is calling for an up 3 to 4% budget, but factoring in 5% inflation, it's actually a real decline of 1%. So that's first thing. Defense spending is up but we are concerned about what the fiscal 24 budget looks like because we don't think it's quite enough. Second, Europe has obviously increased defense spending. GDP has 1% of sales to 2% on defense. Third, the the U.S. has made it clear 
that it's going to let Ukraine fight its wars. So the West is going to fight its wars while the U.S. supplements it with goods. As you mentioned, we've dropped over 33 billion in supplies. Uh, Two billion happened today. Um, that's focused on UAVs and missiles. And then fourth, um, I think this pivots us to what happens in China and Taiwan and that conflict in the potential 2026-2027 timeframe. And the shortage of goods, whether it's COVID, the supply chain has created. Because although the budget is up 10%, the contractors I follow, they declined revenues 2% in 2022 because of the budget shortages, uh, sorry, because of the supply chain shortages. So I think it means we have to enact more quickly to be prepared for the next war. Fred, real quickly, what if the U.S. becomes more fractured in its support for this conflict? Well, we, we have to guard against that. And I think what guards against it most, I'm going to be talking to the House Select Committee on Intelligence on Tuesday. And the message I'm going to be sending, there's a growing consensus uh, in the West, uh, U.S. and its allies, that this is really a battle playing out on Ukrainian soil about the future, about the global future, and what set of countries and principles and rule of law are going to guide it. And so whatever we're spending on Ukraine right now, they are fighting on our behalf, on, on, uh, on NATO's behalf, on the West's behalf. Uh, and if they fail, that means other boots on the ground from NATO countries ultimately might have to come into play. History has taught us that. So I think the message to Congress to keep us together is whatever we're paying right now, it's a lot cheaper uh, than letting Putin uh, have a victory and then having to pay more later. And Halima, I'll give you the final word as this enters year two. I mean, that's the big concern is that we're going to be here this time next year having this conversation. And we talk about the revenue that Putin continues to take from oil. I mean, he still is able to tap the most significant source of funding. I mean, yes, there are price caps, but he is still able to fund this war effort through hydrocarbons. Do you think there will be a bigger effort to try to deny them the ability to do so? I mean, the problem is, is that we have made the decision that the price is too high for the West. We have not imposed secondary sanctions on Russian oil exports. We have not done what we did to Iran, for example. So we are continuing to let them access at least that one very important funding stream. Fascinating, because we can't do it without shooting ourselves in the right. foot. Thank, thank you, everybody. Really appreciate your perspectives today. Halima Croft, Sheila Kailu, and Fred Kemp. And still ahead, we'll turn to shares of Warner Brothers Discovery, fractionally lower after mixed earnings, but up 67% just since Jan 1, streamrolling the other streaming stocks. Is Zaslav's turnaround plan working? We will dig into the numbers next. Welcome back. It's been a bit volatile in shares of Warner Brothers Discovery since the company's earnings report after the bell. Revenues missed. 2023 earnings guidance a little light, but there were some indications CEO David Zaslav's turnaround plan is working. And that's how you get the shares outperforming the market today. Julia Borston here with that story. Julia? Kelly, that's right. Warner Brothers Discovery's earnings and revenue may have fallen short of estimates, but CEO David Zaslav was bullish. He said that while last year was focused on restructuring, this year is about building on the company's strengths, namely its valuable IP, such as DC Comics and Lord of the Rings. A key sign of the company's focus on margins, losses at its direct-to-consumer division were less than half the amount that analysts expected. And those losses are on track to continue to trend down this quarter. The company's free cash flow in the quarter also grew to nearly $2.5 billion, about 600000 more than anticipated. Atlantic Equities writing, quote, we remain convinced it is a high-quality company emerging from a very difficult leverage position, yet trading at a dramatic discount 
to peers. Now, one sign of the potential to make money from some of the company's popular brands, its new Hogwarts video game sold 12 million units in just its first two weeks. So Kelly, the question is, what are the other brands that Warner Brothers is discovering is sitting on that can generate uh, similar sort of revenue stories with? Yeah, the new Disney, what do you think? I mean, that's the question. Uh, It's so interesting because Laura Martin, an analyst who covers the media sector so closely, said maybe Warner Brothers Discovery is the new Disney. Now, when I think of Disney and what Bob Iger did so successfully, it was all about creating brands, building up those franchises, and then exploiting them across every one of the company's different divisions, whether it was television or streaming or the theme parks. Now, Warner Brothers Discovery does not have three theme parks, but actually points out they do have this video game division, which could be incredible profitable for them. Very different business than the theme parks, but the potential to get the volume out there, I mean, 12 million units, that was $850 million in revenue. So if you look at some of the other DC Comics properties, you know, if you look at what Disney did with Marvel, can they do the same thing with DC Comics? There hasn't been a Superman movie in a while. They're going to be doing more movies with those popular characters. Interesting point. Uh, Big ambitions. Julia, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Julia Borston. Still ahead from farm equipment to EVs to vacuums, we'll get to three buys and a bail in our Under the Radar AI edition next. Stay with us. They see a window of opportunity for equity markets to rebound. Let's go to work. Countdown to the opening bell. Trading starts right now. Where do you want to be in a still cautious and uncertain environment? Welcome back. When we talk about AI, the likes of Microsoft, Alphabet, and NVIDIA are probably the first names that pop to mind. But what are some not-so-obvious but important ways to invest in this new technology? Joining us now is Danielle Shea. She's VP of Options at Simpler Trading, and she brings us three under-the-radar AI buys and one bail. Danielle, welcome. I really appreciate this. So the first one might be a surprise, but AI was a hot topic in its earnings report last week. John Deere is your first buy. They recently have this autonomous tractor. They have AI tech for pest and weed control. Tell me about this one. Why do you like it? I like this one, Kelly, because they're leading the way in AI in the agricultural space. The best way to increase production is either going to be from buying more land or from finding a way technological wise to increase your production. And John Deere's just doing that. They have a strong um, customer base and the stock is incredibly strong in this overall stock market. All right. So John Deere doesn't necessarily pop to mind when we talk about AI, but this you think could be a sort of a huge long term beneficiary. Now, by the way, is this when we talk about these beneficiaries, what is the time frame you think we need to be keeping in mind here? 
Kelly, these are five-year buys for me at wow. least. What I like to do with these stocks is I like to dollar cost average, especially when the market pulls back. You know, they're great bear market buys because they're long-term picks. Okay, that's actually the perfect way for me to introduce or tease the next pick, which we have talked about a lot over the last year or so. It is Tesla. The shares are up almost 60% this year. They dropped 65% last year. It's not about the cars. It's about the tech that goes into them, you say. Yes, that's correct. Tesla right now, it's still being considered a car company, but in the long term, this is going to shine as an AI company. Elon Musk has his master plan day coming up on March 1st. And I think that we're going to see through that and the continued news that's coming out of Tesla and the rest of his companies that Tesla is in fact an AI company and it should be valued as such. You know, people are worried the AI is going to take them down because it's full self-driving. You know, it's one thing if you say, OK, we're going to try to plow a field. It's another thing when you're talking about, you know, can they really have uh, have cars out there on the road safely? Well, you know, it's always a question, but right now it's in beta. And I tell you, Kelly, I have it myself. And yes, there are some issues from time to time. But with the over-the-air updates, um, it's continually improving. And the technology is incredibly impressive. And I think it's going to change the future of driving. All right. The real headline here is that Chase's Tesla is a buy for over a five-year time frame. That's going to be, I, I think, a, a focus point. All right. Let's move on to Qualcomm. That's number three here. It's having its third straight week of gains you think they're cornering the market for AI mobile devices? Yes, that's correct. Qualcomm is a leader in the space as it relates to mobile devices, and they also have synergy with 5G in the cloud as well. So as we know, you know, everyone has a mobile device. This is a space that's going to continue growing over the course of the next five years. When you combine the 5G um, plus the cloud plus AI, I think this one's going to be a long-term winner. And it also right now has relative strength as well. So... I think for all of these reasons, this is going to be a great long-term pick. All right. So Qualcomm runs it out along with Tesla and Deere. Now, your bail is probably the original AI play in the market. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, everybody, you might have one. It's iRobot, down 12% this year on pace for its third straight year of losses. And you're saying, people, don't be tempted. Stay away. Kelly, there's a few reasons why I don't like the stock. Number one, I don't like the technicals. You can see it had a very big boom and then a bust. Um, in addition to the fact the fundamentals just aren't there, you look at earnings, they're all over the place. Um, but more than that, I just don't like the product. And it's impossible for me to invest in a stock if I don't like the product. I've tried these Roombas. All they do is run over cords, get stuck on things. <laughs> and they also have a ton of competition. So I don't like the stock. I think it's going to 2020 lows. Well, yeah, listen, it was cool when it first came out, but I think it's good for society that AI is moving past uh, the, the living room carpet. Danielle, thank you so much. Appreciate all your time today. Danielle Shea with this edition of Three Buys and a Bail. AI. Now, it's not speaking of AI, by the way, in chat GPT, we're starting to see more bans. And we're not just talking about schools. We're talking about Wall Street restricting its use. Big banks, including Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citi, Deutsche, Goldman, and now Wells Fargo recently banned chat GPT. The majority of these firms raising concerns about sensitive information sharing and third party software. We'll keep following the story and bring you more developments. That does it for the exchange today with stocks off the session. Lowe's Power Lunch picks up coverage of this market sell-off in just a moment. There's Tyler getting ready. There's Ron and Sana. Hi, Ron. We'll see you guys on the other side of this break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.